If you are looking for a, a good prayer to memorize, you could do much worse than that one. This morning, we're going to return to Isaiah 28, and we will be standing in a moment to read God's Word. I'm just giving your legs a chance to rest. It's a lengthy passage this morning, so it's not in your bulletin. So if you do have a Bible, if you would turn there on your phone, if you'll find that, if you have a device or look on with someone. As we've studied and looked at Isaiah and this incredible book that, as I mentioned earlier, some refer to as the fifth gospel, because Christ is just declared throughout this prophecy of Isaiah, this preaching and teaching. The first 12 chapters of Isaiah, we saw God's redemptive purposes for his people, for his covenant people. In chapters 13 to 27, we saw God's purposes and plans for the nations, for for the world. Today, beginning in chapter 28, and this will continue through chapter 39, what we'll begin to see is God declaring that he is sovereign over history. Meaning he has the power and the sovereignty to fulfill all of his purposes and plans. All of these things that I've promised you, he says, I will bring to pass. I have the power to do so. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Ray Ortland said that if you could reduce the message of God to the entire human race, the message of God as we find it in his word, if you could reduce that down to two words, it would just be, trust me, trust me. It's such a small word, trust, but it contains a world of implications. Trust means firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. In his word, God is calling us to believe in his reliability, his truth, his ability, his strength, not our own plans or our own devices or schemes or our own power, but his. He is calling us to surrender ourselves to him and to his plans for us. So in chapters 28 to 39 of Isaiah, we're confronted with that message. So after God has announced his redemptive plans for all the world in the first 27 chapters, he then promises that he has the power to bring those purposes and plans to pass. Now this claim, this claim, it meets us head on, head on with this command to trust me. And just in case we're tempted to answer that command with a nod of the head and say, well, sure, sure, I trust you. Without actually considering the implications of such a command, Isaiah will expose the other objects of faith. Other objects of faith in the lives of the people he preached to 2,700 years ago and people that he still preaches to today. There are some There are some who will hear this, this passage and this message, even who are in fact living with their faith completely in something or someone other than God. The warnings that Isaiah declared millennia ago still resonate today for you. And those warnings are graciously given. 
This word is graciously given. Anytime God gives a warning and we can hear it, that is graciously given because there's an opportunity to repent. If God gives you ears to hear these warnings and his word and his promises and repent and turn to him, then you need to know that that is a display of his grace too because that is a work of his spirit. And today may very well be the day of your salvation. But there are others, others who will hear this, who believe in God, who trust in his word, who long to know and follow his son. I pray that that's true for all of us. However, there are still lingering shadows of unbelief in your life. You're still tempted to think that the surest way for you to have happiness or comfort or freedom from fear is by taking control. Taking control instead of surrendering to God. There are still areas where God wants his word and his spirit to penetrate deeper, deeper into our lives so that he can free us from slavery to fear and so that we can rest more fully in him. This chapter that you're about to hear, it includes three false foundations three false foundations that people build their trust upon. But it also, it also contains promises of God's grace for those who rest in him and judgment for those who refuse to do so. With that, if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 28 this morning. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Those also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. Excuse me, these also reel with, with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you from from morning by morning. It will pass through by day and by night and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and and to work his work, alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear, hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, put in wheat and rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. This is what happens when you give the pastor a few weeks off and he's rested. He comes back ready to preach the whole thing. Take it all at once. We won't look at every verse this morning in Isaiah 28, but I do want to look at how Isaiah lays this chapter out, this sermon probably that he preached maybe many times. And you're gonna see three things that people place their trust in and their hope in other than God himself. And then you'll also hear God's offer of grace, but also his promise of judgment for those who do not repent. First, we see there in verse one. Verse one, the the first word is ah, in some translation, it's the word woe. So we could say woe, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Now, this is a reference to the Northern Kingdom, often referred to as Israel or Samaria, which is also the name of its capital, or sometimes Ephraim, which is a a huge tribe. They had a huge uh, tract of land. So sometimes in the Northern Kingdom is just referred to as Ephraim. Now, the proud crown mentioned here is probably pointing to the capital city of Samaria itself, which was at the head of this rich valley. And remember, God promised to give them a wine flowing with milk and honey. And this was a fertile area and they had vineyards that produced incredible amounts of grapes, incredible produce. And it was a beautiful city. 
But by this point, it was perhaps all that was left of the northern tribes. The Assyrians had been continually advancing through the northern kingdom. And here the people of Samaria noticed their hope. Their hope was found in their pride, in their outward beauty, and in their indulgent lifestyle. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians, about people who boast in outward appearance and what our eyes see and what, what our hands can grab. But God, we're told, looks on the heart. So people may boast in their outward beauty, but God is gonna look upon the heart and he sees the heart of the people of Ephraim. This is even as the Assyrians, even as their enemies are, are advancing closer and closer, the inhabitants, notice they're arrogant and they're rude and they're, and they're indulgent in their lifestyle. Look at us, look at us, we're too beautiful to fail. There is no way if our city has so much abundance, if we have wine flowing, if we have wealth and beauty and splendor, clearly we have God's favor. God sees the heart. He saw the heart in their wealth as they occupied this rich land that God had blessed them with. Instead of it leading them to humility before God and gratitude, it led to pride and indulgence. Drunkenness is mentioned here. Drunkenness or any other kind of overindulgence is an attempt. It's an attempt to find in a substance or maybe even in an activity to find in something else what can actually only truly be found in God. It's often used, substances or even activities are often used as a way to try to escape the pain of this life. The, the grief of this life or to experience the pleasure of this life through what we can control. When there are things that call for grief or lamentation, to drown those emotions out with a substance or with indulgence and just entertainment perhaps, that doesn't address our real need. The real need just stays there and grows. That can actually keep someone from crying out to God in faith and growing through the hurt. People run to other things, run to substance, activities, whatever it is, to avoid crying out to God. And all the while, the great physician of the soul was ready to comfort. Why do people run to substances? Why do people indulge in constant entertainment? It's because we want comfort or escape or pleasure on our terms in something that we can control. In Philippians 3, Paul is writing to the church and he says that there are some, even within the church, who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. And here's how he describes them. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, that is their appetites. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. Paul is saying that, that that could even be true of us. Beware. Scripture affirms that God has given us many good gifts, many incredible gifts to include wine, we could say. However, God also provides us with guardrails, guardrails in our lives for all the good gifts he gives us. He provides us guardrails to keep us from careening off the side of the mountain 
as we zoom down the road of enjoying God's good gifts, if we aren't careful, we can begin to treat those gifts, whatever they are, we can begin to treat them as our real source of hope for life instead of the one who gave them. That's what was happening with the people in Ephraim. Now, I wanna move to Isaiah's next next warning, we could say, or or, uh, exposing another false sense of hope. And now he's gonna turn to his, we we might say his real audience because now this is speaking to the southern kingdom. And really he he holds up Ephraim as a warning. Don't do what they're doing. And now he's gonna speak to the the people in Judah. And while their liberal relatives up in the, the north there boasted in their beauty and proudly drank themselves into a stupor, where did the conservative Jews in the south, in Jerusalem, where did they place their hope? Well, look at verses seven and eight. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. So it turns out that they were no better. In fact, they may have been worse They reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. And as Isaiah points out, they think they're consuming, but actually they're being consumed. Verse seven, he says, they are swallowed by wine. And who's he talking about? The priests and the prophets, the leaders. Listen to God speak through Malachi. Malachi in chapter two, in contrast to what we read here, listen to God's intent for Levi, the priest, and those who would lead. This is Malachi 2, beginning in verse five. My covenant with him, that is with Levi the priest, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's what God said. He desires for the leaders among his people, for the prophets and the priests, that their lives would reflect the message and both would be held up as they walked with God. But Here in Judah now, for these priests and prophets, what we find is their private lives of dissipation actually compromised their spiritual testimony and their spiritual perception. Isaiah says they stumbled in judgment. They didn't just stumble in their balance, but actually in judgment. Not only did they they stagger in their speaking, but actually it hindered their vision of seeing and knowing God. The very ones who God called to speak with clarity about his character and to call his people to walk with him, they actually minimized the message by the character they demonstrated. Their lives undermined the message by showing that they, in fact, didn't trust God themselves. Now, we read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter says to the church that you are a holy priesthood. (laughs) We are a holy priest. We are priests unto God. He has called us now 
to declare the message of the gospel full and free, salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And that gospel message is also a gospel that declares that we are a new creation in him. And he longs for that work to be ongoing in our lives. And as you've heard many times, so we live a life of repentance and faith. Here though, the people minimize God's word through their lives. But that wasn't the only way they minimized the word. Later in verse 14 and 15, or in verse 14 and 22, we're gonna hear that they, that they scoffed and mocked. And we actually see their scoffing and mocking in verses nine and 10. So look back at verse nine and 10, and you may notice in your Bibles that there are quotation marks. These are statements that the, the priests and the prophets were making about Isaiah. This is what they said about Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, for it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. What the priests and the prophets were doing is casting doubt among the people on Isaiah's declaration of God's word. They were saying, we know all there is to know, Isaiah. Who do you think you are teaching us this methodical and elementary message about God's grace and our need to trust him? Do you think we're infants and toddlers that you have to keep declaring to us about God's love and his grace and his warnings about judgment? And the the line here, precept upon precept, line upon line, that's a good translation. But if you read it in in the Hebrew, what this doesn't capture is it sounds like baby talk, like gaga goo goo, kind of like that. Do you think we're a bunch of babies? We need something more erudite. We need something more grand. Surely there's some hidden knowledge for us that, that we need. Isaiah, you're just, you're just too basic for us. Now, we may read the book of Isaiah and say, this is anything but basic, but they're just trying to discredit Isaiah and his ministry. They're trying to discredit God's word. Why do people minimize God's word? because then they can ignore it. We minimize it so we can disregard it. We disregard God's call then to trust him and the warnings for unbelief. In Romans 10, Paul says, that is with the heart that one believes and by faith, as we believe and trust, we're then justified, made right with God. And he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in God's son, you will be saved. But then he asks the question, how is it that one can hear and believe? How can one confess? And he says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Our enemy wants to silence the proclamation of God's word through our mouths or also to silence it through our lives. It's a false hope. Others rely on minimizing God's word so they can disregard it. But there's one more category in Isaiah 28 that Isaiah addresses. We find that in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. So he's speaking to the rulers. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. A little background's necessary here. 
just a little bit of background. Uh, Israel divided into two kingdoms, um, Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, all the same place in the north and Judah in the south. You may recall from earlier in our study of Isaiah that the Assyrians are the, the big boys, the, the, the bullies on the block, and they're beginning to put pressure upon Israel in the north and Judah as well. So Israel formed an alliance with Aram. They actually attacked Judah eventually. We saw, we heard about King Ahaz who, who reached out to Samaria to try to form the pact. Well, this is many years later. And God has done exactly what he promised he would do. Aram has fallen to the Assyrians. That was in 732 BC. The Northern Kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC, just as God had said. And now the Assyrians are pressing down upon Judah itself. They were overwhelmed. What do we do that we have no hope? And Isaiah is preaching and prophesying, trust God, trust God. Well, then the, the king of Assyria died and there was a break in the action, a lull. It was just enough time for Judah to come up with a plan and to form some kind of counterattack. And they had a neighbor to the West who was ready to come along, the Egyptians. The Egyptians send emissaries over. They, they come to Judah and they say, listen, we know the answer. We know what you really need, us. We're the ones you need. You need to form an alliance with us and then we can deal with Assyria. Isaiah says, bad idea, bad idea. Your only hope is in Yahweh and his promises. Trust him, trust him with your life. Trust him with everything. Trust him, surrender yourself to him. So here's King Hezekiah. I've got two options. I've got a military answer or I've got Isaiah declaring this these promises of Yahweh. I look around, things look grim, things look bad. This is far worse than a balloon floating over the homeland. This is the Assyrians pressing in. What do I do? What's the answer? What's the solution? King David, who was Hezekiah's ancestor, had said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Hezekiah did not say that. Hezekiah formed an alliance with the Egyptians. That is what Isaiah refers to here as a covenant with death. <laughs> he calls the covenant for what it is. You've actually formed a covenant with death and what you're finding as your refuge is actually lies. You're actually hiding under the, the lies of your neighbors and the lies of the leaders in your, in your country who've said what we need is a military answer and no, you need a theological answer. What you need is faith in Yahweh. Does your ultimate confidence and hope sway with the size and capabilities of our military or our alliances? Does your faith in God's sovereign care and his eternal purposes undulate with the ever-changing political landscape? That's what was happening in Judah. They were, they were looking to the false security of power and politics. This is what we need, more power and and more political sway. We have to be sure we're aligned with the right people here if we're going to be safe, if we're going to be delivered. How does this play out for you? How does this play out maybe in your family, maybe your extended family? Is there politics in families? Absolutely. Power plays, yes. How about in your work? How about in church? How about in the community? Where's your hope? 
Where does your hope rest? Isaiah has pointed out three places. Some people look to worldly glory and pleasure. Others look to the ability to, to disregard God's word. If we can just minimize and disregard God's word, then our problems are solved. We can ignore his warnings. Others look to human power and politics. But God speaks. God speaks. And we will either find rest in his grace or experience the judgment he promises. Now, you may be sitting here today and you may say, you know what? I don't have outward beauty. I, I don't have any outward beauty to boast in. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what? I'm not powerful. I don't have powerful friends. I'm not well-connected. You, you may be thinking, all I have is Jesus. <laughs> I've got great news for you. Isaiah has marvelous news for you. What we find three different times in this chapter is the promise of God's grace. Look at verse five and six. This is after the, 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 he speaks to the people in the north and we'll hear in a minute about two through four, God's promise of judgment. But look at verse five and six. For those who trust him, the remnant of his people, he says, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. You wanna see real glory? That's where you're gonna find it and see it is in God himself, not in human glory. He will be a diadem of beauty. <laughs> you think you've seen beauty. God himself is a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. He's a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. He will strengthen the weak knees. He will give justice and, and sound judgment to those who trust in him. This is where true glory and beauty and hope rest. Paul himself learned that it's when we are the weakest when we lack outward beauty and outward shows of strength, the times when we see, seem to be the most vulnerable, that actually God chooses to show his power through us and in us. He wrote this, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. We don't readily do that, do we? Boast in our weakness. Let me tell you where I'm really, really weak. Why would he do that? He answers the question. He says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I got nothing but Jesus. <laughs> Here's another place we find in Isaiah 28, this promise of the gospel. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, we hear God's word that he has declared to his people. This was the word that he gave to those who are constantly trying to take control either through their own beauty or through their own power or through political means. What has God offered this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. God's message to his people, his message to you is one of rest. He offers rest to the weary, rest to those who are continually trying to control everything instead of just trusting God with their lives. Jesus himself came declaring the same message, didn't he? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the offer of the gospel. It's an offer, it's a call to find rest in being yoked to Christ, abiding in him, walking as he walked, loving as he loved, ever suff even suffering as he suffered because it's rest, or it's rest because it's secure, because we're already redeemed and saved and loved 
We're secure. So we can live what feels like a risky life of loving other people and walking humbly before them. There's one other place that I hope just jumped out to you in this passage about God's grace, the promise of what God would do. That's in verses 16 and 17. You're looking for something to build your hope on. God says, behold, I'm the one who's laid as a a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. We're familiar with that passage because we hear it repeated in the New Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in Romans 9, verse 30 through 33, if you wanna go look at that at some point. And he holds it up and he says, the sure foundation is not a what, but a who. It's Jesus Christ himself. We have the benefit of knowing that this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul actually says that the Jews stumbled over this foundation. And he explains why. They stumbled over Christ because they took the law even, they took God's word and they used it as if it was a covenant of works. As if if we do these things, then we will secure our salvation. This is our hope in what we do. (laughs) But the promise is, no, this foundation is for those who trust. It is for those who believe, those who rest in Christ. So Paul says the Gentiles actually have salvation while the Jews stumble. They stumbled over Christ. Is he enough? Christ, who is our substitute. Christ, who finished the atoning work for us on the cross, as we sang earlier. Christ, who declares to us that we desperately need a savior and the savior's come. Isaiah couldn't help but declare this message, actually, even just as he walked in the room and somebody said, well, there's Isaiah. Isaiah's name means salvation is of the Lord. It's his work. It's his work. Now, along with these promises of God's grace, there's also promises of judgment. And I'll let you go back and read these on your own. They're written for you there. And so the, the word of warning is if you are unwilling to surrender yourself to the grace of God, you will actually then one day face his judgment. In verses two through four, he talks about this strong and mighty adversary who will come, probably the Assyrians. God says, I'm actually in control of that army. They're doing my bidding. In verses 11 through 13, he talks about a people of strange lips. Again, another nation will come. And if you won't listen to my declaration through Isaiah that you say is precept upon precept and line upon line, then there's gonna be people who come and you're not gonna understand what they're saying, but they are going to speak to you precept upon precept and line upon line, and they're going to strike you down. That's, if you, if you won't hear my voice, then you will see and feel my judgment. Finally, this covenant with death, this is in verses 18 through 22, this covenant that you've made, it will be annulled, he says. And what I find to be a a, a kind of a funny depiction that Isaiah uses in verse 20, he said, this bed that you're making for yourself, (laughs) this bed of comfort and, and trying to find like hope in the Egyptians, that bed's gonna be too short. I've gotta admit, I've never had that problem. I've never found a bed that was too short for me, but some of you probably have. Maybe if you're 6'3 or taller, maybe you've gotten in a bed and your feet hang off the end. Never had that problem, but I feel for you. 
Isaiah says that's gonna be your situation. If you're resting in the Egyptians, that bed is too short. And if you're trying to find cover in military efforts, and if you're trying to find cover through the, the, the lies of other people, he says that cover's too narrow. It won't wrap around you. It's like trying to stay warm with a, with a washcloth. It won't cover you. But what will cover you is the love of Christ. What, the bed that does provide you real rest is the finished work of my son, the foundation that I've laid. That's what Isaiah is declaring to us. Now there's a last section and I'll close with this, verses 23 to the end. 23 to the end, this Isaiah, it seems to change and he talks about a farmer. He talks about a farmer and he, he asks questions. It's a sort of a parable of sorts. And what he's saying is that farmers don't continually plow. They also plant. Why? Why do farmers not just plow year round? Well, they've learned through experience. If I do that, then we get really, really hungry the next year. If you're going to have a harvest, you have to plant seeds. How did a farmer figure that out through experience? Who provided that experience? God. He's saying here, and this is an interesting thing, I'll let our, some, of, some of you take this on, actually all knowledge is derived from God himself. That's what he's describing. Even farmers know how to farm because God has revealed this to them. So he's saying that, but I think he's also saying something that's incredibly important. There's a time for sowing and a time for reaping. The farmer knows when it's time to till the ground and when it's time to sow the the seed and when it's time to reap the harvest. And he knows how to deal with the harvest and he treats herbs and grains differently. What Isaiah is saying is God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. He's tilling the ground. He's sowing the word. Let the word take root in your life. Hear the word today and let it take root because there will come a time when it is no longer time to till and to sow, but to reap. And those who refuse to hear will experience this judgment. So what will you trust? The question actually is, who will you trust? Who do we trust? Do you trust yourself? Do you trust your own pride or beauty or indulgence? Do you trust your own self-justifications for minimizing and ignoring God's word? Surely he didn't really mean that or it's not a big deal. Do you trust your own ability to align yourself with the right power brokers and politicians of the day? Or will you trust God in his glory? God who offers salvation full and free. God who offers shelter and spiritual strength and rest. And when we rest in him, the bed is not too short. The cover is not too narrow because he shelters us under brothers and sisters, the love and the righteousness of our savior. And though the storms may rage and may batter you on every side, God will sustain you because you are resting on the rock, the foundation, the tested stone, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would take your word read and proclaimed and that you will work in our lives, that you will build your church, that you will use your word mightily. Lord, if there is anything that has been said that is in any way contradictory to
to your word. I pray that you will give us the hearts and the minds of the Bereans, that we would test it, test it against your word, against your proclamation. Lord, shield us from error, but help us to grow in truth and fix our eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ. Fix our faith more and more fully upon him. In his name I pray, amen.